This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media. I'm Kenya Alonso. And I'm Edgar Cruz. The city of Albuquerque and the First Lady, Elizabeth Kiston Keller, have started an initiative called the One ABQ Challenge to encourage citizens to engage in a community service project that connects youth and elders. Generation Justice is so happy to participate in this challenge with our youth media makers documenting the stories of civil rights activists in Albuquerque. We will hear from Jennifer Cornish, a local activist. Jennifer speaks about her activism as part of the Chilean Solidarity Movement in the 1970s. Then, Ronald Solomon, owner of Solomon Business Development and Strategy and former executive director of the Indian Public Cultural Center, shares his journey to leadership through culture. But before we hear these compelling stories, we have some music to share with you. Here is September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Jennifer Cornish is a lifelong activist and the former executive director of multi-campus operations for the Central New Mexico Community College. Since retiring, Jennifer has continued to support public education in Albuquerque and even volunteers for Generation Justice. Now, my co-host and media justice intern, Kenya Alonzo, speaks with Jennifer Cornish on her advice to young people and her activism in the 1970s Chilean Solidarity Movement. This is Kenya Alonzo with Generation Justice, and I am here with Jennifer Cornish. Jennifer volunteers here at GJ. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes. uh, As you said, my name is Jennifer uh, Cornish, and I recently retired a few years ago from Central New Mexico Community College and now have the amazing ability to uh, spend my time doing the things that are important to me. So, And part of that is being here at Generation Justice. Thank you. Could you tell us the story of how you became involved in social justice work? Yes. Um, it was a very long time ago. I feel like starting with a long time ago and far away. Um, I was living in Los Angeles, and uh, my brother, uh, who was in college at the time, um, wanted me to be involved in a group of youth who were having cross-racial conversations. This was right after the Watts riots in Los Angeles in 1965, and so I became part of a group of of young white um, high school kids who were having conversations with uh, young black high school kids who were from Compton, and we were from further south in Los Angeles. So that really was the first time that I experienced a totally different milieu, different experience of interacting with with people who had just been through this really wrenching and difficult uh, experience. And so that started my activism. I then uh, volunteered in the mayoral candidacy um, of Tom Bradley, who was the first black mayoral candidate in Los Angeles. Wow. Thank you. Jennifer, could you tell us a bit of the history of the revolution in Chile? 
Yes, uh, that's it's a it's a complicated story. So I'm going to just do the the basic highlights. Uh, but my introduction to that whole situation um, in Chile really came um, after, in 1973 when the uh, democratically elected government of Salvador Allende was overthrown by the military, and I came to understand that um, that the United States, through activity through in the CIA, had collaborated with the military to overthrow um, uh, this the the president of Chile. And it was a violent um, overthrow. So many people were killed. And it, it was only then that I started to go backwards and understand sort of how that uh, his election came to be, and how he was a socialist um, president. And he was pushing things like land reform and um, and more resources towards uh, poor and indigenous communities in Chile, and that ultimately he um, he was murdered in the presidential palace. So at that point, I decided that I wanted to understand that better. I majored in Latin American studies um, in college. And although I didn't graduate at that time, I took courses to help me figure it out because I'm a learner. I need to understand. So, uh, And then at that point, I heard that there was a program at UNM, um, University of New Mexico, that they did an, uh, this program, a study center in Quito, Ecuador. And so I said, I want to go to Quito so that I can figure out what's happening in Latin America because this was a time of great rebellion is really the best word to say where the upper classes which had always had control over government and resources um, were being met with um, you know lower economic uh, communities who were really starting to understand that they could fight for their uh, for their rights and for ac better access to resources so I did. That was in 1976. I'm sorry, 1975. And so UNM was my, the way I got to go to Latin America. And there I met my first husband, who was a Chilean refugee living in, in Ecuador. And, and then that became my life, was standing in solidarity with the people who were resisting the military dictatorship in Chile. And I was deeply embedded in that sort of... Um, that sort of that community who was tr fighting to support those people um, who were on the ground in Chile doing that work. So that lasted for some years. Um, and then I later on became um, involved in a, th the civil war in El Salvador and traveled frequently to El Salvador to do support work for refugees um, who, uh, due to the war that was going on. Thank you, Jennifer. Now, could you help us understand why the movement in Chile was such a landmark for you and other activists in the U.S.? The, the exposure to understanding the levels of repression that a state in power can engage in was really fundamental for me. I, growing up in the United States, I didn't understand how state actors can can act in violent ways to um, sustain and uphold the current power structures. Um, here in the United States, it's, um, it's more invisible to us, but equally real. It's just that we don't see it. Um, we don't see battles on the street, or um, we don't 
hear of people being disappeared. So having such a powerful example of what the state is capable of doing to its population um, was an extremely powerful experience for me. And many of the people that I knew uh, that came from Chile as political refugees to the United States had the majority of them had experienced um, arrest, incarceration, and extreme levels of torture. So their stories were what opened my eyes, I suppose you could say, but also gave me the basis for trying to understand why and how that happens. How does what you experience relate to what we're currently experiencing in the U.S. today? So I'd like to go to a little anecdote um, to help because it helps me understand um, about 1991 or so, um, the Kellogg Foundation um, sponsored a conversation between uh, the parties that were in conflict in Nicaragua, and um, I was asked to help translate. And so I attended the event, and it was um, an event where there were people who had been comandantes on the Sandinista side um, during the Civil War in Nicaragua. There were also people from the the, uh, the right-wing government, and then there were also people from the private sector. And when I walked into the room and realized that the leadership of the Sandinistas, the, the, the representatives who were there, had sat down with the government and private sector people and had these conversations like, oh, how are you doing? Last time I saw you was in university. How's your sister? What, you know, what's going on? And that the only person who was left out of the conversation was an indigenous guerrilla leader because he was not of the same class as the other people who were involved in the conflict. And even though there were profound philosophical and and um, interest differences between the Sandinista leadership and the the you know the pro-government um, uh, representatives there still was this class you know they were able to see each other's interests more clearly because they had this common experience and so I the way I see that affects me now is that I really do understand that it is um, it is the racial inequities, the economic inequities, which um, create true deep division between people. And so that sort of has become the lens through which I understand the conflict now. And um, and the the other piece that I that I learned back then was how powerful misinformation campaigns can be. And so and that's totally what we're seeing now. So does that answer your question? Yeah, I think that's a super like accurate comparison today. So thank you for that. You bet. What are some of the things that the solidarity movement you were a part of do to demonstrate solidarity? There's a level at which um, much of what um, I believe that solidarity means is that since we cannot experience the same things um, that people who are deeply embedded in, in conflict and in um, difficult circumstances, we can't live those experiences. So it's important for us to understand our roles 
And one of the roles that I really felt that I was able to fulfill, and many of my um, my compañeras, you know, other you know gringas, primarily other white women my age, um, what we could do was we could um, we could walk with or stand with. Or in some some ways, I feel like there were times that I used my white privilege um, to facilitate a situation. So, for example, um, in El Salvador, this was during the war in the 80s, um, I would travel with union leaders who were trying to get to meetings. I would travel in their cars because I would provide a sense of protection um, for them. And so, you know, they were able to use my, you know, my gringaness <laughs> um, to help uh, safeguard um, their, you know, their travel. Um, so that those are some of the examples. But also, I think that um, it's one of the things that you learn is to uh, be with people, you know, just really be with them. And, um, and have a deep appreciation and love for people who are unlike you. And so that's one of the most powerful lessons, I think, for me. Oh, thank you so much. What advice would you give to your younger self with the wisdom that you have now? That's such a great question because hindsight is so awesome. <laughs> but um, I, I, I really do believe that um, I felt at the time that that my um, my activism and my sense of wanting to be of service in some way, I did believe at the time that it was a lifelong commitment. And um, I am so glad that I can look back. I mean, I'm not totally done with my life yet, but I'm so much closer uh, that um, I would tell myself, be patient, hang in there. This is for the long term. Um, make sure that you're paying attention to the things that are also important besides this the solidarity work. Make sure that you give your family what the, your family needs. I, I have two children. And, um, and make sure that you are doing those things which um, make you better at doing this work. So learning the things that you need to learn. Um, Under, deepening your understanding of the situation, and I think that there was at, there was some point where I started to realize that it was really important for me to understand my own white privilege and to understand that that was the sea that I swam in, that it had been invisible to me at the for so many years, and really to start to wrestle with that issue. So um, I would at this point, if I could tell my younger self, I would ask myself to deal with that a little earlier. <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, I am where I am. Would you give youth today the same advice? Yes, although advice is a tricky thing, right? Because you can say something and they go, oh, yeah, well, that was you. That doesn't necessarily apply to me. Um, but I do tell myself, I do tell younger people. So you know, pace yourself. Take it easy. Be nice to yourself. Here, here's a peach. <laughs> Or whatever it is, you know. Um, so I do see it as part of my role to um, love and care for younger people uh, because we all need it. But I, I have the ability to um, now have more energy to do that than to give that to others. 
Now, education has been a part of your background. Why is it so important to you? I worked at Central New Mexico Community College for 25 years. And so, um, and much of that time, I was directly working with students. So I was an academic advisor for part of that time. And knowing people who would come in on their first day and be scared and not sure of, of what they were doing and is this is this going to be worth the effort and I don't even know how to do college and um, it, it, it often was a really scary experience. So watching so many of those people go through that experience and become you know, powerful people and and going on to support their families and and to feel like I have agency and power in this world, that was just the best. That was the best part of it. Um, but going back to my own experience, um, I did not finish college. Um, at, at, as a young person, I um, became a single mom and um, I had the great fortune of being able to go to a community college at that time. And the, in those days, community college in California were free. So I went to college. I got an associate degree in, in computer technology, and I never had to look for a job again. I mean, that became the basis for which I could guarantee security for my family. So... It was my own experience that I knew this matters, this counts, and it changes your ability to feel like you can support your family, take care of business, and move move forward in the world. Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Just a reflection on um, my experience here at Generation Justice. Um, that uh, one of the things that I'm grateful that I um, that I learned over the years was um, the just how much I love working with young people and how much um, how much it's important to my own sense of well-being that I see the 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 power in the young women and young men that, that I'm meeting here because it gives me hope for the future, and that's important to me. It also gives me the opportunity to explore um, more deeply um, what, what I understand is, um, is my own white privilege and the ability to say, look, I am not the judge of whether I'm racist or not. You all are. And so that is something that I can seek to get feedback on because I, even though I'm just 65, um, I'm not done. I'm not done in this world. So I need, to, I need to make sure that I'm continuing to be a better person, to improve myself, to, um, to walk the talk. So this is a great place for me, and I cannot thank everybody here enough for that ability. Well, thank you, Jennifer. I just, I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to interview you. And yeah, just thank you for being so open with your feelings and with your experiences. And I just want to say thank you for the work that you've done and the work that you're still doing. So thank you. Thank you. I love you guys. This was Kenya Alonso with Generation Justice. Jennifer, 
Thank you so much for sharing your experiences of working in South America with us. It was so amazing, and I am now reminded of just how lucky I am to know you. Thank you. I feel so grateful to you, Jennifer, for sharing such profound advice on self-care and what it means to truly stand in solidarity with others. Before our next interview, here is Los Palafitos by Grupo Raíz and Paloma Quiero Contarte by Victor Jara, both songs from Chilean artists. Ron Solomon is a member of the Laguna Pueblo. He served in a cabinet position with the Institute of American Indian Arts and is the former executive director of the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center. Ron is now the owner of Solomon Business Development and Strategy. He joins us tonight to share about his path to leadership for New Mexico's native communities. And now my co-host, Kenya Alonzo, speaks with Ron Solomon. This is Kenya Alonzo with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Ron Solomon of Solomon Business Development and Strategy. Welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you, Kenya. It's an honor to be here to talk with you, share a little bit about my life with you. Hey, thank you. Ron, could you please tell us more about yourself? Sure. Um, you know, given my uh, age now and experience, uh, I have a, a lot to tell, but I'll try to just kind of give you a bio version. I am from the Pueblo of Laguna, where I'm a member. And one quarter of me, according to uh, blood quantum values, uh, it would indicate to people that I'm a one quarter Zuni. And so I often illustrate that by drawing a pie on a sheet of paper and saying this is this is kind of who I am and where I come from. I uh, was born in Fort Defiance, Arizona. I spent the first five years of my life in Gallup, New Mexico, with my grandfolks and my mom. Dad was in the Korean War for those years, so uh, I didn't know him for the first three years of my life until he came home. I had one sister. She's uh, since deceased, uh, predeceased me. And uh, I have uh, a wife and two children. Uh, my children are both uh, young professionals, and they uh, live in different parts of the country. Uh, my daughter lives in Prescott, Arizona, and my son uh, lives here in Albuquerque. That's kind of the quick bio, you know, of you know who I am in terms of my 
my uh, family uh, as it currently exists. And there's a lot of different things I could say, but I think those are probably pertinent to you know, trying to describe to anyone that's listening, you know, who I am. How do you define social justice? What were some of the earliest experiences working towards equity, indigenous rights, or social justice? And how old were you? Mm-hmm. Well, my my experience, you know, with uh, hearing about uh, inequities and inequality uh, really came from the uh, grandparents that I had, especially my grandfathers who served on tribal council uh, for the Pueblo of Laguna. And my Zuni grandfather, who married into the Pueblo, was uh, governor uh, of the Pueblo at one time in uh, 1958. And uh, my other granddad served on the council, too, uh, when he returned from being off the reservation and working with the Santa Fe Railroad and having his own business in Gallup. Um, So I heard a lot about the kinds of uh, inequities and... uh, lack of opportunities that people have, basically a situation wherein uh, wealth was not being shared equally, you know, by the uh, Native population that uh, we were a part of. And then more so as they talked about different issues that were facing our people, you know, I discovered that those same issues, you know, really faced all Native people here in the United States. So those are my, you know, those are really my childhood experiences, having uh, grandfathers that were really invested in our communities and that had experienced things uh, that they felt needed to be tended to. So, and they never turned to me and said, and you will have to deal with this, you know. But as time went along, the uh, more educated I became, the more uh, interested I became in uh, what being uh, Native American in uh, their day and age uh, was about uh, the more kind of invested I got in uh, kind of tuning myself into uh, advocacy and to becoming an advocate for our people. You know, it just seemed like it was pervasive, you know, from, uh, you know, the way that people were treated at restaurants to the way that we were uh, treated by the uh, state and federal governments and sometimes local governments. Uh, it's kind of uh, depressing, and uh, you you could think, well, this is the way it's always going to be, or you can, it raises your hackles no matter what age you are, but particularly as a younger person, it raised my hackles, and basically it wasn't fair. Yeah, I used to be somebody that uh, would always ask why. Why are we being treated this way? And uh, so that's kind of where my earlier kind of exposure was to inequity and exclusion. Could you talk to us a little bit about informed decision-making and how we achieve that? Well, I think it's up to individuals that are in responsible positions Key leaders, uh, be it a uh, a tribal council, city council member, a member of Congress, maybe a member of the state legislature, to really uh, try to learn what the backdrop, what the historical context is of an issue that they might be dealing with uh, when legislation or public policy changes are being considered. And uh, I think it's, you know, that comes from basic reading. 
Uh, nowadays, uh, there's no excuse uh, for anybody to be walking around ignorant or to be uh, making decisions without having read something on the issues or the historical backdrop for issues, especially with regard to Native Americans. You think about what motivates people to do the right thing. And right now, the one thing that's being uh, discussed quite a bit but in, in the church is repudiation of the doctrine of discovery. And that has uh, many different implications, you know, going back to the Roman Catholic faith and the papal bulls that basically were edicts from the popes. And those, uh, those edicts basically uh, allowed people or gave them basically a license to kill uh, people that were not of uh, Christian beliefs and to take their land. And so those kinds of things are, you know, they're readily available. It's a hard read, I mean, if you really invest yourself in looking at that. But uh, there are many people that are looking at that as a way to kind of retract maybe things that have gone on to extend apologies to the uh, Native populations, and then basically from that point on to discover ways in which uh, we can all live uh, together better and in more harmony, having that understanding. It's not like everything can be reversed, you know, because there are things that are historical fact now that can't be reversed. But uh, we can move forward uh, in unity in some cases or, or in situations where there's always going to be disagreements. You, know, you can just agree to disagree and move ahead and, and uh, you know, foster uh, different kinds of uh, public policies that really are for the benefit of everyone uh, for future purposes. I agree. I think we need to use the resources that we have to educate ourselves. So thank you. Now, why is it so important to have places like the Indian Public Culture Center, which are entirely dedicated to indigenous people? Those are, those are institutions that are vital to educating uh, Native and non-Native people about uh, who we are as Indigenous Americans. And, uh, you know, the Institute of American Indian Arts, really the full legal name is the Institute of American Indian and Alaska Native Arts to include our brothers and sisters up in Alaska. And uh, so that's, that institution is really a foundational institution in terms of providing uh, the education from a historical perspective and uh, modern technology that they have there, uh, assisting people to really uh, gain an overall understanding of who they are as, uh, as uh, Native people, and then preparing them to you know, actively be part of the... Uh, job market in several different venues. You know, take film, which is very big now. That institution, you know, has uh, basically come a long way in providing that kind of education and background for many individuals. And then basic art, you know, when you think of, you know, everything from pottery to oil to acrylics, sculpture, all of that, that provides a uh, unique way in which people can express their creativity reflect the culture, customs, and traditions in many ways in pieces that they produce that are valued by people worldwide. It really is a kind of an orientation center for people that are visiting 
our state and our region in terms of trying to understand who the Pueblo Indian and Athabascan uh, peoples are that uh, reside here. You know, they tell our story. They inform people in a very gentle way. Uh, they have archives. They have libraries. They have uh, videos nowadays that really identify to individuals that really want to learn about who we are as people. And then it makes their visits to these communities uh, in accordance with the protocols that we have. Because as we know, people can't just you know, go to a, go to somebody's home. Uh, it'd be like just going to anybody else's home here in the city or in a town, and just saying, "Hey, I'm here." You know, I'm I'm gonna. I want to enjoy some uh, good, some of your good chili and stuff like that. That that kind of protocol is really not acceptable. Although our people are so hospitable, they'd probably say, "Well, yeah, sure, come on in." You know, we'll uh, we'll we'll warm up some chili for you, even though it's not our feast day, and accommodate them. But uh, the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center, where I spent uh, 12 years of my life, uh, uh, was uh, it was a dream of our Pueblo leadership. I saw it uh, under construction and completed in 1976. And as I was sitting across the street uh, from it in a whole different, working on a whole different project, I never knew that I'd actually be responsible for it at some point in time as the CEO. And so it was a, it's been an interesting uh, path and to reflect upon the property that we sit on, which was the Albuquerque Indian School and all of the relatives and friends and family that we had uh, that were educated there that, uh, you know, were superstars there or that struggled there or that died there. Uh, I think every one of us that has been in the leadership role there, be it on the board of directors or as a president and CEO, you know, we respect that legacy there of our people, our native people. Uh, and uh, that's why it's being carefully developed now. Thank you. Yeah, I remember when I was a little kid and I went to the cultural center for the first time and I remember thinking, wow, my cheeks kind of look like theirs or just sitting, just being with other kids and having them be like, is that what you are? And I'm, that's where I really learned like what it's like to be a Native American, to be Pueblo. Mm -hmm. So thank you for all your work that you've done there too. Oh, sure. It was my pleasure and my honor. Who inspires you? There are a lot of people that inspire me. You know, you inspire me. When I think of a person, a young Native woman being in the media and going through the process that we're involved in today. That inspires me. Uh, but, you know, you have the typical figures uh, that uh, have inspired me. You know, definitely my granddads and my grandmothers. Those were the biggest inspirations for me in, in different ways. My grandfather from uh, Zuni, my grandmothers from Laguna, they were all classmates from the class of like about 1917 or 18 at the Albuquerque Indian School. The three of them were really, at the time, highly educated. You know, they graduated from high school. And that was probably, you know, the 10th grade at the time that they graduated. But the three of them were highly educated. My other granddad um, uh, that married uh, my uh, grandmother, Marie, he was basically self-educated. He was an individual that had grown up working very hard, didn't, didn't finish uh, elementary school, didn't go to junior high or high school, college, or anything like that. But he was one of the most innately smart and intelligent individuals. 
And he's the one that actually became a businessman in Gallup, New Mexico, and uh, had his own saddle shop there. And a lot of people you know, still remember that. They remember him, Jim Poncho. And my other granddad was uh, Jim Solomon. And, uh, you know, they're both known for different attributes that they had. Uh, so I learned a lot from them. And like I mentioned earlier, um, I learned about the kind of challenges that they faced uh, being in tribal government. And my granddad, Jim Poncho, uh, one time drew this caricature. He drew a lot of caricatures because that's how he spent his time in council. It looked like he was taking notes, but he was actually drawing these caricatures and cartoons in some cases of the presenters. So we had a person from, I guess at one time, uh, BIA, like a superintendent, uh, come in. And uh, I guess he was just, you know, my granddad saw through the presentation and uh, basically was trying to depict the whole thing. And so he depicted the uh, BIA superintendent on a mule that was bucking and then with the with the Laguna people sort of like being the chickens that were running away from this bucking mule and so it and uh so it it was uh, crazy because uh that's kind of sort of the way that I learned how they saw uh you know the individuals that were responsible from the, for them that were exercising the trust relationship on behalf of the federal government toward our people and then effectively for other people or ineffectively for other people. Uh, so those those two individuals probably inspired me the most. Thank you for sharing like all those stories. It's so great <laughs> just to that. hear like who inspires you. <laughs> so that's great. Thank you. Sure. What advice do you have for young people today? Young people, I think, uh, as we older Native Americans or older people, you know, just when we look at you, we cherish you. We cherish you you and hold you in high esteem. And we want you to get prepared for the execution of your own life. You know, what kinds of core values do you bring? I think if you don't know what your core values are or if you're a tribal person, explore that with your family or with relatives that can talk to you about what the core values are of your tribal community. And then also just allow yourself to make mistakes. You know, really don't be so hard on yourselves because we all went through that process and there is always, there's somebody around that says, you know, look, you know, same sort of thing. You just got to give yourself some leeway, you know, give yourself a break. You know, don't come down on yourself to the point where you just are pouring cement around your feet and you can't move. You know, you've got to just give yourself a break and get over it. You know, whether it's it's something that's academic, whether it's a personal relationship, uh, just keep moving. Keep moving. Value yourself. Value what you have to offer to the world. And uh, somewhere along the line, people or an individual will value it and will let you know that. You know, whether it's by virtue of uh, offering you a good job or position uh, or offer you their hand and to be your partner for a life or for some period of time. Uh, I think those are all all key things uh, that I would want to convey to any uh, young person out there. Thank you. 
Is there anything else that you would like to add? That's always a dangerous question for Ron Solomon, <laughs> as my friends would say, because there's, there's so much to share. You know, and I'm really a storyteller, too, as you probably can tell. But uh, one of the things that I would just like to share is that for me, there is nothing like being a member of a tribe, a larger family. There is really nothing like that, you know, especially in some of our cases where, you know, your affiliations or our affiliations go in two or three different directions, two or three different tribes. So that is just, a, for me, it's, it's one of the best gifts that I could have ever received is to be a member of different tribal groups, you know, when it gets right down to it, because there's such comfort in that that uh, other people you know, are not privileged to have. And we have to value that so much. When I think of people that I need to advocate for, that's my core group, Laguna, Zuni. And because of all my other relatives, and it goes out to Hopi, to Navajo Nation, Hikaria, Mescalero. You know, so when, when people are asking, well, you know, who do you really represent? And basically, it's like all of Native America after a while. Because of all the acquaintances that I have now across the country, Iroquois Confederacy, all the way up to Snoqualmie, Washington, uh, down to San Diego, the tribes there, you know, uh, the the acquaintances that I have, things are happening, and there's an opportunity to advocate, uh, you know, on their behalf. I will, because it's you know that's the even larger family that I have now is all my acquaintances across the country. Thank you. Ron, so much for taking the time to come here today. And I'm just, I feel really honored and I feel like it was truly a privilege to sit here with you and just talk with you because, like you said, you are a storyteller and you tell everything so openly and honestly that I really appreciate it. I just want to say thank you. You're most welcome. This is Kenya Alonso with Generation Justice. Thank you so much, Mr. Solomon, for sharing your experiences as a Native American navigating academia, and I admire your ability to use those experiences as a looking glass into the past. Ron, I am so glad that I was able to talk with you. You are very kind, and I am inspired by all the work that you do. Our next song was chosen by Ron. Here is Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. We've reached the end of another hour of resistance. We would like to thank our guests, Jennifer Cornish and Ron Solomon. And thank you to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Production for tonight's show came from Kateri Zuni and Roberta Rael. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out our multimedia content and listen to our podcast, which is also available on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can visit us on social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Kalanama Health Foundation, the Albuquerque Community Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. We would like to thank First Lady Elizabeth Kiston Keller for the 1ABQ Challenge. We are so grateful to be a part of it. I'm Edgar Cruz. And I'm Kenya Alonso. We'll be featuring more of these amazing stories, so stay tuned to Generation Justice every Sunday at 7 o'clock. Up next is Spoken Word. Y con mucho, mucho amor, nos vemos.